Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Oil hits the Gulf shore, and officials look for answers in the massive BP blowout. Government watchdogs say the federal agency in charge of offshore drilling is part of the problem. With respect to this rig, uh, they found that there was uh, no need to even do an environmental review because the risks of damage from a spill were so minimal. The government's minerals management service under the microscope. Also, how the big spill is changing energy politics. Coastal Democrats push back against the president's drilling plan. I will make it short and to the point. The president's proposal for offshore drilling is dead on arrival. We'll hear why that could make it harder for Congress to act on climate change. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The race is on in the Gulf of Mexico to limit damage from a massive oil gusher. And the heat is on in Washington, where Congress is looking for answers as to what went wrong. We have reports on both. We begin in Washington. Just a month before the BP rig exploded, Congress's own investigative office sounded the alarm about systemic weaknesses in the regulation of offshore drilling. And federal officials responsible for enforcing the law in public waters exempted the BP rig from a full environmental impact analysis. Jeff Rook directs the nonprofit watchdog group Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, or PEER. Rook says the Department of Interior's Minerals Management Service, or MMS, gave that BP rig a pass. MMS has taken the posture on this rig and rigs um, elsewhere offshore that the risk of spill and the consequence of those spills are minimal and not to be a matter of concern. With respect to this rig... Uh, They found that there was uh, no need to even do an environmental review because the risks of damage from a spill were so minimal. What do we know about decisions being made on whether or not to drill in other potentially sensitive areas, say the newly opened lease areas uh, in the waters off Alaska? Well, the Government Accountability Office issued a report last month that took MMS to task for suppressing an array of critical findings on issues likelihood of oil spills, acoustical damage to whales, and they found things like the scientists at MMS are under pressure to churn out reviews that omit important environmental concerns, and conditions were so oppressive that uh, in the five years that they looked at, uh, in some years as many as 50% of the analysts left the Alaska office. That GAO report, Rook cites, also sheds light on larger problems with how the Minerals Management Service makes offshore drilling decisions. Mark Gaffigan wrote the report. He's GAO's Director for Natural Resources and the Environment. What we found is that there seemed to be a lack of a good policy framework for how they do that analysis. The Department of Interior, for example, calls for a guidebook on how to do these things, and MMS did not have one. 
So in the case of of the Deepwater Horizon drill, the officials there decided not to require this environmental review. But what guidance did they have to make that decision? Well, we felt without the handbook that they didn't have good criteria for making that decision. And what they missed out on was a much more detailed environmental impact statement, which would provide a lot more multiple opportunities for public comment and required plans for mitigating the potential impact. Looking at the assessment of could this adversely affect uh, fisheries in the Gulf of Mexico and could it affect uh, the general water quality, damage the ecosystem, all those sorts of considerations need to be weighed when considering oil and gas development. That certainly seems like a big deal now. It sure does. So there's a lot of focus, obviously, now on what went wrong in the Gulf and how to change policy to improve things. What would be your recommendations? What needs to be recognized is that oil and gas development in the United States has a long history. And we have drilled more wells than any other place in the world. And what's quickly forgotten is that the U.S. is still the third largest producer of oil in the world behind Russia and Saudi Arabia. Because we are so well-developed and we've explored in a lot of areas, we're starting to reach out to the harder areas. And the degree of difficulty in producing oil in deep waters increases. And there's some increased risk. And those considerations need to be carefully looked at when we're thinking about going further and further out trying to get this oil that's difficult to obtain. That's Mark Gaffigan of the Government Accountability Office. In a March letter, Minerals Management agreed with many of Gaffigan's recommendations, but it's not clear if any changes have been made. Jeff Rook of the watchdog group Peer says the agency's entire culture needs to change. Under the Bush administration, the Interior's number two official went to prison on corruption charges, and an internal investigation found some minerals management staff doing drugs and sleeping with oil company employees. The Obama administration pledged to end corruption. But Rook points out that it was on Obama's watch that BP's drilling plan got its final approval. Rook says the agency's problems are chronic. Even its dual mission is a challenge. It both polices and promotes offshore drilling. Their primary role is to collect the government cut, the royalties, and they're also supposed to make sure that the operations are done according to law. And the principal laws involve protecting the environment uh, from many effects, principally oil spills. Is there a conflict there? Uh, There is a conflict, uh, but for almost its entire history, it's always been uh, resolved in favor of promotion. MMS has never been known as an alert cop on the beat. President Obama's uh, interior secretary, Ken Salazar, when he was uh, selected, he told uh, the public and uh, members of Congress that cleaning up interior and in specific this office, Minerals uh, Management Service, this was one of his top priorities. President Obama promised a policy a year ago to protect scientists and government science from political manipulation. Those rules were supposed to have been in place in July, and they're unaccounted for. We don't know where they are. The Interior Department itself has no scientific code of conduct. In terms of scientific integrity, protection of whistleblowers, Secretary Salazar has been completely missing in action. Jeff Rook of Peer. The Interior Department did not respond to our requests for comment. The real test of whether the department has made changes may come in Alaska's waters, a spot where the GAO found many shortcomings. Shell Oil plans exploration drilling there as soon as July 1st. The big spill has also churned up the politics of oil and climate on Capitol Hill 
as Living on Earth's Mitra Taj reports. It was a carefully crafted compromise, a Senate proposal capping greenhouse gas emissions to slow global warming. To make it more politically viable, a big concession for the oil industry, as put forth by President Barack Obama last month. Today we're announcing the expansion of offshore oil and gas exploration. Just weeks later, BP's Deepwater Horizon offshore oil rig blew up. And it didn't take long for some coastal Democratic senators to ride the oily waves of political opposition heading for their shores. I will make it short and to the point. The president's proposal for offshore drilling is dead on arrival. Florida Senator Bill Nelson and New Jersey Senators Bob Menendez and Frank Lautenberg gathered on the lawn in front of the Capitol building to demand a renewal of the moratorium on offshore drilling that expired in 2008. They're also channeling their outrage into a new bill that could hold oil companies liable for damages of up to $10 billion. Senator Menendez. People ask us, well, isn't that an extreme amount? Well, BP made $5.6 billion in profits in the last quarter alone. I think they can be responsible for their actions. But the spill spells trouble for what many saw as the Senate's best shot at tackling climate change, a bipartisan proposal aimed to break the country's foreign oil addiction, back up the president's international pledge to limit emissions, support the coal industry through a greener economy. It had something in it for almost everyone, and expansion of offshore oil and gas exploration was key. Now the three Democratic senators, who were likely yes votes, have joined those who have vowed to kill the climate change bill. Senator Nelson of Florida. If offshore drilling off of the coast continental United States is part of it, this legislation is not going anywhere. And if I have to do a filibuster, I will do so again. And fortunately, I think we're going to have a lot of help now. The climate change bill was already a huge task for this divided Senate. Even before the gushing started in the Gulf, the proposal was thrown off course when its Republican co-sponsor, Lindsey Graham, abandoned the effort. Now its remaining sponsors, Senators John Kerry and Joe Lieberman, are looking left and right to rebuild support. In the halls of Congress after the press conference, the senators walked fast. I haven't even talked to Lindsay. Uh, When the moment is appropriate, I will give you a sense of where we are heading. Are you still optimistic? Yes, I remain very optimistic because we're going to pass a bill. With whose support? With 60 senators. Kerry's been struggling to find the political equation that will deliver the 60 votes needed to overcome a filibuster. And since the Gulf disaster, the math has become more complex. Key now is what, if anything, should be written about offshore drilling. Lieberman says he won't drop support of offshore drilling from the proposal. Uh, Because there were good reasons for us to put in offshore drilling, and this terrible accident is very rare in uh, drilling. You know, I mean, accidents happen. And he says the bill could keep them from happening. The proposal that we're making, I I may be announcing this, I know it's no big deal, but is that you can't drill within uh, shorter than 75 miles from the coast. So that's, and and we're giving adjacent, uh, we're giving states a veto. I gotta run. But 75 miles from the shore isn't far enough for Senator Lautenberg of New Jersey. No, because, my gosh, if we don't see that oil, no matter what speed it travels at, can go a hell of a lot further than 75 miles, uh, then we're, we got our heads in the sand, we got a different kind of problem. The oil industry has been keeping careful watch of political changes afoot on Capitol Hill. Sarah Banizak is a senior economist for the industry's chief lobbying group, the American Petroleum Institute. 
there's no indication that the industry can't work effectively under regulations put forward by the government, work with the government to design the right regulations. I believe that that process still works effectively. Environmental groups are split, some calling for a permanent ban on offshore drilling and others willing to keep it on board if it means passing a climate bill. Steve Cochran is the National Climate Change Director for Environmental Defense Fund, an organization that's been working closely with the sponsors of the climate proposal. He says if the legislation puts in strong regulations for existing offshore drilling while being neutral about new offshore drilling, it might find safe ground. We need to have protections in place today. Then we can have a conversation about whether we're going to do additional drilling. Tempers are pretty high right now. This is a bad thing going on in the Gulf. I would be very surprised to see a bill go forward that that had incentives for drilling at this stage of the process. A native of Louisiana, Cochran says he hasn't lost hope yet. These things get negotiated, right? I mean, that's the nature of, of the Senate. It's a deliberative body. Sometimes it doesn't look very pretty in the process. But I believe, based on the conversations that we've had with staff and listening to people, that there are paths forward. I mean, the irony of ironies would be that if the reason that a bill which is fundamentally designed to remove our dependence on oil was killed because of an oil spill, we have to be better than that. Senators Kerry and Lieberman say they'll launch their climate bill in coming days, but there aren't that many days left before Congress gets distracted by the election season. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington. Just ahead, what's at stake in the Gulf? Keeping watch from the pristine marshes of Grand Bay. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Protecting the environment is vital to the people of the Gulf Coast, to the fishermen, to the hotel and business owners, to environmentalists, and perhaps to no one more than Bill Finch. He's conservation director for the Alabama Nature Conservancy, and he took Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet to one of his favorite places. It's neither land nor water, the pristine Grand Bay Marsh. The... uh first thing you notice is the fact that you just see forever not just out to ocean but uh but all around this fringe of marsh all across grand bay the quietness just the just the absolute lack of any appearance of human disturbance for as far as you can see we're in the middle of the open marsh and with black needle rush And you know why it's called black needle rush. You can see because when you put your arms down, uh, it will impale your arms. But then right, we're standing in this little river of green that's only about ankle high. This is the salt pan, a salt flat, a special feature of a marsh where salt gets deposited and creates a special community and very diverse. And the great thing about this time of year is that the salt pans, which are usually very dry and crusty with salt, they, uh, they sort of bloom and grow this time of year, and they get flooded. Right on the edge of this salt flat, it dips down into the Gulf of Mexico. This whole ecosystem is really about absorbing the Gulf of Mexico this time of year, sucking it up, drawing it in. Uh, it, it really That contact with the deep ocean this time of year really regenerates this habitat. It's, it's that time of, of connectivity to the Gulf when it's at its peak. Uh, but it's the, it's the very worst time 
for, for an oil spill to be coming in because the marsh is so accepting of everything the Gulf throws it. Look at the crabs. Hundreds of crabs. Thousands of crabs. All through this marsh. Just look at all of them. It's incredibly productive. Shrimp, fish of all types. Uh, this, is a, this is a real important nursery area for all types of fish. And uh, redfish, which are real popular sports fish here. Uh, speckled trout. Shrimp. Crabs. Virtually everything we eat out of the Gulf. everywhere. Uh, this is, uh, I don't know which species of marsh periwinkle this is. It's a snail. and uh, It's climbing up these um, salt grasses. Oh, salt grasses. But it's a periwinkle, a marsh periwinkle. And uh, they're just really abundant. They're the, the primary grazers of this marsh. When things get disturbed, there's a real concern that marsh periwinkle, the snails, may uh, overgraze a marsh and, and kill it. What are those disturbances? The marsh gets stressed by too much oil. Maybe the oil kills the chief predators of these periwinkles, which would be crabs. And so you don't have as many crabs, and so the periwinkles just go wild. And, you know, people might say, oh, well, it's the uh, periwinkles that kill the marsh. Well, no, they didn't. They've been here for, with the marsh for tens of thousands of years. So we may see the loss of this marsh as a... As occurring not just because the oil is toxic, but because it tips the balance to one species or another that, uh, that gets an unfair advantage because of the oil. You know, the, and the real trouble we have is we don't probably know a whole lot about the relationship of crabs to periwinkles or periwinkles to grass or to anything else. And so when the system gets knocked back and we say, oh, well, we're going to restore this, well, we don't know what it was like. Oh, look at them, look at them, there they are. There they are. There they are. Yeah, there they are. See the turquoise on their backs? See that little turquoise streak on the backs of some of those fish? They're, this is that time, they're, they're getting ready to spawn. Those are not sail fins. I don't know him. Oh. We need a time to go through and just sort of figure out what's in here. What all is using these salt pans? Look at this male here. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him sort of staking his territory out. See him over here? See him staking his territory, fluttering around, beating up on the other males, yeah. running into them, showing off his tail, showing off his fins. This is, the, this is that time. You were so busy yesterday and I know that you're so busy today with your phone going off and yet you're spending a fair amount of time out here and I was wondering maybe this is the place that you feel like you should be today these places are largely ignored uh, we do very little to protect them under the best of situations but uh, it's important that people know what it's like when it's healthy and how vibrant it is and how important it is to the entire, entire Gulf of Mexico um, so yeah it's important that I be here you almost feel torn enjoying such a beautiful place such a beautiful day when you, when you fear what's so imminent 
and I want to see it. I, I want to see it one last time. Uh, if this is the last time, I want to remember everything that was here. I want it. To, I hope it does break my heart. I mean, I, I don't want my heart to be broken, but I, I will. I'll leave it out there for that to happen uh, because it's important that we see this. Uh, I don't want to forget about it. Bill Finch, conservation director for the Alabama Nature Conservancy with Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet at Grand Bay Marsh. There are photos and much more about the situation on the Gulf Coast at our website, loe.org. Oil spills also leave their mark on our nation's energy policies. In fact, the modern history of environmental and energy law is largely the history of spills. In 1969, a drilling rig's pipe blew out off the coast of Santa Barbara, California, gushing three million gallons of oil into the Pacific. Reporter Bob Solon of the Santa Barbara News Press remembers an anonymous phone call. It was a male voice It said, the ocean is boiling around Platform A. And I don't know to this day who that person was. For weeks, images of dead marine life and blackened beaches focused attention on the offshore drilling industry. That helped launch the modern environmental movement and spurred the creation of the National Environmental Policy Act and the EPA. Twenty years later, in 1989, Captain Joseph Hazelwood radioed the Coast Guard from his ship in Alaska's Prince William Sound, a ship called the Exxon Valdez. At least 11 million gallons of crude dumped into the Arctic Sea. Congress responded with the Oil Pollution Act, banning many oil tankers from operating in the Arctic Sound and requiring ships to have spill-resistant double hulls. It's too early to tell just how much oil will eventually pour into the Gulf of Mexico or just how political leaders will respond. But if the past is any indication, this disaster could very well decide the Obama administration's environmental legacy. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, 74 billion pounds of chemicals are produced or imported into the United States each day. That's more than 240 pounds of chemicals day in and day out for every man, woman, and child in the country. And that doesn't even include chemicals used in drugs, foods, fuels, or pesticides. The federal law that's supposed to protect people and the environment from industrial chemicals is more than three decades old. And consumer and environmental groups, the EPA, even manufacturers agree the current regulations governing industrial chemicals are long overdue for reform. Living on Earth's senior correspondent Bruce Gellerman reports from Washington. In the Living on Earth broadcast studio on Capitol Hill, I'm surrounded by things made from chemicals. The walls and floor are carpeted. The ceiling is insulated tile. My desk is painted. I've got a plastic bottle. My pens and printer are filled with ink. There's a pile of alkaline batteries. And just look around. Chances are you, too, are also surrounded by products made with industrial chemicals. Our products, our industry's products, touch 96% of all manufactured goods. That's Michael Walls, Vice President of Technology and Regulatory Affairs with the American Chemistry Council. 
It's a trade group representing the nation's largest chemical manufacturers. You know, you're talking about an industry that is vital for the national defense. It's vital to the health and safety of all Americans. And, you know, you're talking about the solutions to some of our global problems like climate change. You know, the reducing CO2 emissions is fundamentally a chemistry problem. There are over 82,000 industrial chemicals registered for use in the United States, and the number is increasing by about 700 new chemicals a year. That concerns health advocate Andy Egregious. It's true that chemicals are used in almost everything. There's lots of benefits from chemicals. But I think for most people, that's all the more reason why we should know uh, what's going on with them. Egregious is campaign director of Safer Chemicals, Healthy Families. It's a coalition of 200 organizations campaigning for changes in the federal law regulating industrial chemicals. Chemicals are on the market right now are effectively unregulated. The federal government has not reviewed their safety and said, oh, okay, this is okay to be used in all these ways. They have not done that. It's nothing like what we do for drugs. For drugs, manufacturers must prove to the Food and Drug Administration that their chemical compounds are safe. But under the federal law known as TSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act, industrial chemicals are automatically considered safe. It's up to the government to prove they're not. Senate Democrat Frank Lautenberg of New Jersey has proposed a bill that would radically overhaul TSCA. California Democrat Henry Waxman is leading the effort in the House. The Toxic Substance Control Act was adopted in 1976, and it has never been revised. But nobody thinks it's working. Even the industry realizes the law needs to be revised. You know, clearly we're committed to the safe use of our products. Former Congressman Calvin Dooley is head of the American Chemistry Council. We think Tosca has been working uh, very well. But we also recognize that after 30 years uh, that there's opportunities to even enhance its effectiveness and utilizing some of the new science and technology uh, to uh, even do a more accurate assessment uh, and comprehensive assessment of the safety of chemicals. This represents a major shift in the Chemistry Council position, a reaction to growing public concern over environmental toxins. Previously, the council advocated voluntary measures, but in recent months, congressional and EPA staffers, advocacy groups, and industry representatives have been meeting to work out the many technical details for overhauling TSCA. Michael Walls of the Chemistry Council has participated in those sessions. I think that's what's remarkable about this issue is that at this stage in the discussion, there is a consensus that maybe we can do something. But it's in the details where the hard work still needs to be done. The devil is in the definitions. Right now, in order for the government to regulate a chemical, the EPA has to prove it poses, quote, an unnecessary risk to people or the environment. Jane Houlihan, vice president for research at the Environmental Working Group, says that's the first thing that needs to be changed. Under the current system, chemicals are innocent until proven guilty, and the new proposals would flip that. There would be a burden of proof. Industry would need to provide proof to EPA that the chemicals are safe enough to use. The new standard would require companies to demonstrate, quote, a reasonable certainty of no harm. That's the same standard the federal government now uses to regulate pesticides. The American Chemistry Council agrees the burden of proof should be on manufacturers, but President Cal Dooley cautions that adopting the no-harm standard 
could hamper innovation. You know, I think the questions now is in, in really in terms of how do you define uh, that standard? And I think that's really the public policy, um, you know, challenge that we face is what is that uh, risk standard uh, that we're willing to accept? And how is that standard set and met? Today, the United States is the only developed country in the world that does not require a chemical maker to submit safety data before production. But without the data, how can the EPA determine risk or harm? Again, Jane Houlihan of the Environmental Working Group. One thing we have in federal law now is a requirement for companies to submit studies that they happen to do. There's no requirement to submit studies. If the company determines that that study indicates a significant risk to human health or the environment, now that's the company's interpretation of whether that is a significant risk. If they say, yeah, we think it's a significant risk, then they submit that study to EPA, but it's their discretion. Right now, the EPA has just 90 days to review a new chemical before a company can start selling it. And in only 15% of those products does the manufacturer provide the agency with any health and safety studies. It's such a weak law that EPA has used it to get off the market or set restrictions for only five chemicals or chemical families in the history of the law. They've only required testing for about 200 chemicals or chemical mixtures. Now compare that to the 82,000 chemicals that are registered for use in the U.S., and you see that they're only able to tackle a tiny fraction of what's on the market. The last time the EPA tried to ban a chemical under Tosca was 1991, That was asbestos, a known carcinogen, responsible for nearly 10,000 deaths a year in the United States. Asbestos is still used in consumer products. That's because, according to the federal law, the EPA must use the least burdensome option of all other possible actions to reduce risk. So banning asbestos is simply not an option. The proposed Safe Chemicals Act would require companies to provide basic health and safety data for each chemical they produce. It would also create a list of the most dangerous products on the market and give the EPA expanded powers to regulate them. Congressman Henry Waxman wants to go even further. He says manufacturers should have to show how exposure to chemicals affect people in real life. I think the approach that we often take that we're going to look at chemical by chemical leads us nowhere. We've got to get it on a much faster time frame and look at not just one chemical but the impact of a number of different chemicals in combination. Researchers say environmental exposure to chemicals may be responsible for up to 35% of asthma cases, 10% of cancers, and 20% of neurological disorders. But which chemicals? What products? Under current law, manufacturers can claim confidentiality. They can keep their ingredients secret. Congressman Henry Waxman. People who buy curtains or other products that have chemicals in them have no idea that they may be exposing themselves and their loved ones to uh, something that could cause cancer or other disease. So there's no rationality to the regulation at the federal level uh, to protect the public, to make sure that industry has the rules under which they must operate, and to make particularly clear that we want to watch out for the interests of our children who are even more susceptible to uh, toxic chemicals. Proposed updates to the Toxic Substances Control Act would do just that. In the future, chemical companies would have to consider the effects their products have on especially vulnerable populations, including women, children, people of color, and those living near chemical factories. After decades of failed attempts, Congress is now putting the overhaul of Tosca on the fast track. 
Congressman Waxman hopes the House will vote on it before Memorial Day. And Cal Dooley, the head of the American Chemistry Council, is cautiously optimistic. You know, when you look at the political environment today, uh, you look at the complexity of this issue, uh, is that the stars would have to align uh, in order to see action, I think, this year. But many states and cities are not waiting for the stars to align. In the absence of federal action, a growing number of local governments are moving to restrict, and in some cases ban chemicals, the EPA now lacks the ability to effectively regulate. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, the man who collected pennies to rebuild a school. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Now an update on a story and a little good news for an area that's had its share of bad. The coal country of southern West Virginia, scene of last month's mining disaster. Three years ago, we told you about Marsh Fork Elementary, where kids go to school in the shadow of a mountaintop removal coal mine. Dust and fumes from the mine's coal preparation plant waft over the school. Ed Wiley's granddaughter, Kayla, was a student there. Wiley told us his granddaughter and other students kept getting mysterious headaches and nausea. And she says, Gramps, these coal mines are making us kids sick. That hurt. That hurt me. You know, it took her tears to wake me up, and it was like a sledgehammer. Wiley also discovered that the school is downhill from a massive earthen dam that holds back a lagoon of semi-liquid waste left over from washing coal. And when you got 2.8 billion gallons of toxic sludge sitting over an elementary school, it's, it's not good. Wiley was determined to get the kids out of harm's way. When state and local officials showed little interest in moving the school, Wiley did some moving of his own. He walked all the way to Washington, D.C., a 450-mile, 40-day hike to raise awareness and money to build a new school. It took three years, but his group, Pennies of Promise, recently met its funding goal, making a new Marsh Fork Elementary possible. Ed Wiley, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Well, how does it feel to finally have the money for a new school? It's not hit me yet, believe it or not. It's uh, had a few tears here and there, but I guess the big day is when I come down that road and, and see the children uh, actually walking in that school. and That would be my biggest and greatest reward right there. Now, this this all started with you and your long walk trying to raise money to build a new school. How much did you raise in that first effort there, walking all the way to Washington, D.C.? Well, we first opened up a campaign with different environmental groups, and there was a bunch of kids from New York City. Those kids sent $350, and we had $350. And then we we did the walk to uh, draw awareness, uh, to reach out to people. We raised $10,400. 
Which sounds like a lot of money, but to build a new school, you're talking what eight, nine million dollars? Well, when we started out, the price tag was a little over five million, and, and you know, as time goes by, everything goes up. We needed a, around an eight to a nine million to do the job. Now, a, a million and a half is coming from Massey Energy. This is the company that operated the mine where. 29 men died in that disaster. This is the company that operates the the mountaintop removal site right next to uh, Marsh Fork Elementary. How do you feel about taking their money for this? Well, you know, everybody's responsible. Uh, Everybody is in fault. And, uh, you know, they probably should have paid for the whole thing. Why step up to the plate now? They could have built a school a long, long time ago. So, you know, it's all political. It's all, you know, everybody's going to jump on board now and say, well, we helped out this school, you know. And it's fine. You know, we'll take their money, anything. Just get the kids out of there. And do you know when the new school might happen? Well, they said uh, they was going to get this moving right away, starting Monday, and we found out things are moving. We're talking 14 months, they said, to have a school built. It usually takes a little over two years, but they're going to, jump on this right away and get things moving and, and, and get this happening, and they said about 14 months. Wow, that seems pretty fast. Well, it, it, it is, but it's not fast enough. Uh, we need to get it moving a little quicker. Uh, I don't know. I feel we should maybe get some portable classroom somewhere and go ahead and get the children out of there. You know, it's still not safe, you know, and well, just keep working, you know, and pray and hope nothing happens, and the 14 months will come quick. You and others there have been sounding the alarm for a long time about your concerns about the the safety with the slurry impoundment and the blasting and the coal preparation plant right near the elementary school there. Right. Do you think that the disaster at the Upper Big Branch Mine, just up the road there, has uh, changed people's thinking about this and made them perhaps uh, more receptive to your message that there is potential danger here? Well, of course, there's always been potential danger, and yes, I hope they would feel that way. You know, we just lost miners probably because of a mine that had a lot of violations, which there's no probably to it. It did. There was many, many violations there. I've been telling people for five and a half years, the dam itself behind Marsh Fork Elementary has violations. So if certain occurrences happen, this thing will fail and 977 lives will perish. Just like I say, this is why people die in coal mining accidents, because there's permits that's been filed, but nobody's enforcing them. You know, I, I understand there's a move afoot to have the new school named Ed Wiley Elementary. What do you think of that? Well, it would have been a great honor, but uh, it does not matter to me. You know, this is for the children, and, and it's for the community. You know, it's not about me, and uh, it's called the children's school, whatever, you know. But no, I'm very honored if it would be, but uh, it does not matter, you know, at this point. We got the kids in a safe place. Now, you know, it does help save the community, but it didn't stop mountaintop removal. And, you know, and we still have many, many problems here to face, and the battle's not over. Ed Wiley talking to us about uh, the new home for Marsh Fork Elementary. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Well, I'll never forget that September day in 2006 when Ed Wiley walked up Capitol Hill in Washington. He'd come a long way to speak his mind, and here's what he had to say. These kids deserve a chance. Just because they're in the coal fields, uh, we'll not be belittled no more. Uh, We'll not be beaten down no more. All the children in the Appalachian Mountains need a safe, healthy environment to go to school in.
when it comes to recycling, we tend to think of glass, plastic, and newspaper, but it can happen on a much larger scale. Entire buildings can be recycled. It's a process called adaptive reuse, and Joe Alexander, president of the Alexander Company, specializes in partnerships with federal and state agencies to give old buildings new life. He's turning a 1939 courthouse in Kansas City into livable, low-income housing. He says it's a special as well as historic building. The courthouse, like so many New Deal projects, is a significant public government structure. It is a powerful-looking building. It's of neoclassical design. So when you walk in the front door of the courthouse, you walk into a fantastic public space. The doors are bronze and include emblems that reflect the United States and justice. The courtrooms themselves are two-story spaces with huge raised judges' platforms. And Harry Truman kept his local Senate office in this building. This was also the site of an important court decision involving desegregation of a local swimming pool called the Scope Park Swimming Pool Decision that was argued in 1952 by Thurgood Marshall. Of course, he would later go on to represent the nation on the Supreme Court. So with this reuse, someone's going to end up in the room where give em heck Harry, former president, used to, used to do work. That's got to be a pretty strong selling point for somebody, huh? It is, absolutely. You know, it's not only a strong selling point to attract people to live downtown, which is part of what makes urban development and adaptive reuse rewarding, but it is genuinely unique. It's it's a far different and, I think, superior product from cookie-cutter apartment and mixed-use building that you might find next to a highway or on the periphery. However, old buildings often have a lot of problems. They might have asbestos, or uh, they're not terribly efficient. Uh, They didn't uh, used to insulate buildings the way we might like to these days, for example. Uh, How do you overcome those kind of obstacles? So dealing with, with simple things, really, like asbestos and lead paint abatement are things we do all the time. There's established protocols. And beyond that, it is a challenge to bring new electrical and heating and cooling systems into a building like this. In the case of the courthouse, we're lucky that, you know, these New Deal era buildings were were built like tanks. So we we hear a lot about green building and a big push to, uh, you know, be greener than the Joneses when you're you're building and, and incorporate what's called LEED standards, the leadership and energy and environmental design. How does that apply to reuse of old historic buildings? Well, I think it's important to start with the background on LEED. It really used to help help suburban developers atone for their sins and the sprawl they were creating um, so that they could point to at least an attempt to be environmentally responsible. But the courthouse, if you were, say, to tear it down and in order to build a, a shiny new, maybe LEED-certified building you would be demolishing 50 million pounds of existing material. And you might be able to recycle a lot of those materials, but that in itself requires processing and time. Yeah, I guess it is important to keep in mind that uh, no matter how green we build something that's new, building anything new has its footprint. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. The other really important aspect of a historic building is that they're important to their community. 
you know, in the case of the Kansas City Courthouse, this building is, when it's completed or refurbished, will provide 176 affordable workforce housing units. So not only are you attracting new employees downtown to revitalize your urban core, but you're allowing for diversity, both of income and ethnicity. And that is the social justice component of sustainability that's at least as important as what type of carpet you might use. Mm. Yeah. So projects like these um, have an obvious benefit for the city, but to pay for them, how are projects like these going in these uh, strained economic times? Well, there's not very many of them going. The federal courthouse, the only way that this project was able to go forward, like a lot of urban development projects, was through a public-private partnership. Uh, In this case, there was a major focus as part of the stimulus bill on shovel-ready projects. There are few projects that are as shovel-ready as the reuse of an existing building. So clearly a lot, a lot of advantages to uh, reusing these historic buildings. However, I can think of one possible uh, pitfall here, and, and that's ghosts. Uh, any complaints <laughs> along those lines? We just completed um, the adaptive reuse of a former girls' school that was later an annex to the Walter Reed Army Medical Hospital in Silver Spring, just outside of Washington, D.C. And we actually did receive a a complaint from a resident that there may have been a ghost wandering in what was used as a ballroom by recuperating Army soldiers after the Vietnam War. I guess this is part of the uh, price of living in a historic building. You have to put up with a, but maybe an old resident still sticking around. <laughs> we're working on it. We're, we're learning about how to deal with ghosts all the time. <laughs> it's part of the benefit, too. It makes life a little more interesting. <laughs> Uh, Joe Alexander is president of the Alexander Company, telling us about uh, reuse of historic buildings. Thanks very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Living on Earth has just launched a new online initiative called Planet Harmony, and each week we're featuring stories from PH. Planet Harmony is a place for young people who have often been left out of the environmental debate to report on the issues impacting their communities. Today, Planet Harmony's Cambry Thomas brings us a story about second chances in Detroit. I recently saw Examined Life. The movie follows eight modern thinkers as they move through various cities. The thinkers each had 10 minutes to give their thoughts and philosophies to the camera. It was showing in a once-abandoned school that's been repurposed as an independent theater in Detroit's nearly empty Chinatown. During the previews, I studied everything around me, because like the theater itself, everything had a previous life. The bright red velvet seats were salvaged from a nearby remodeled theater. The projector was an old cast-off from another movie house. Even the popcorn machine was an obsolete model from a city-based popcorn company. The funny thing about the whole situation was that I once attended the school before it moved away. I also sat in the seats before, because I used to go to concerts at the theater they came from. And I'd probably seen movies from the projector, too because I used to trek out to the cinema it came from to see midnight showings. My observations faded as the movie queued up and the house went dark. Princeton professor Cornel West came up first. Takes tremendous discipline, takes tremendous courage to think for yourself. He was sitting in a moving New York City taxi. Unexamined life is not worth living, Plato says in line 38A of the Apology. 
How do you examine yourself? What happens when you interrogate yourself? What happens when you begin to call into question your tacit assumptions and unarticulated presuppositions and begin then to become a different kind of person? The unexamined life is not worth living. I settled back into my seat with my popcorn and listened to the ideas of a few more philosophers. But my repurposing thoughts returned when Slovenian theorist Slavoj Žižek appeared on the screen dressed like a garbage collector. Part of our daily perception of reality is that this disappears from our world. He was wearing a fluorescent orange vest while pushing around garbage in a giant warehouse of refuse. Žižek spoke about the environment and ecology. But what struck me was his saying that trash does not disappear. Of course, rationally, you know, it's there in canalization and so on. But at a certain level of your most elementary experience, it disappears from your world. The problem is that trash doesn't disappear. Trash does not disappear. It seems obvious, but it rang even truer coming from a philosopher standing next to a mountain of garbage. He ended by pointing to one of the trash heaps. We should learn to love all this. We should learn to love all this. True ecologist loves all this. Zizek could have been pointing to the projector, the seats, the popcorn machine, or even the school. They would have been just trash if someone had not loved them enough to rescue them. For Living on Earth and Planet Harmony, I'm Camber Thomas. Cambry Thomas reports for our brand new online offering, Planet Harmony, which welcomes all and is designed to have special appeal for young African Americans. Check it out and join the discussion at myplanetharmony.com. That's myplanetharmony.com. On the next Living on Earth, one of the nation's most distinguished scientists returns to Alabama. After 59 years at Harvard, all my adult life, I wanted to go home. So along with the novel, I've written a history of that part of the South. E.O. Wilson and his novel about ants, next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreeskanjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Emily Guerin and Bridget McDonald. Special thanks to Earth Alert for the sound from the Santa Barbara oil spill. It came from their documentary, Sand, Sun, Oil, and Gas. We had engineering help this week from Dana Chisholm, Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, 
the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.